Uh, if you're looking for a preacher, he's not on the stage. I'm over here in the seats. What's up, everybody? Hey, you know, leadership never begins on the stage, right? In fact, I'm pretty convinced the most powerful force to reach a generation is seated in the seats and never stepped on the stage this week. Each one of you guys have an opportunity as you go back to make a difference. Sometimes it's easy to look at the people on the stage and think it's about them and even be a little bit entertained by them. And there's a lot of entertainment. There's lights. There's some really cool people. But at the core, very core of what we're dreaming about, it's not a conference. The very core of what we feel like the Lord's put on our heart, it's, it's not a good show. Our dream is that you would leave here and that the thousands... 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds would go back. And after having encountering God in such a powerful way, would go back and make an impact. And so I got a dream tonight. My dream is that as you go back, that we've got about 5,000 in the room tonight. We've got thousands watching online. But the dream that the Lord's placed in my heart what would happen? What would happen if you went back and we saw a thousand little revival movements that take place on campuses back home? Uh, that, here's the deal. That would only take about 20% of you, 20% of you choosing to be a revivalist, 20% of you to choose to give all. We've had so many powerful messages. I mean, incredible messages about passion, intercession, consecration, mission, and We've had different messages that, that up to this point have been so much about you walking with Jesus and you following him and you giving all and you praying and you becoming holy and you overcoming sin. Tonight, I'm not thinking about you. Tonight, my prayer is if you've got 5,000 in the room, let's imagine that there's 80, 90, 100,000 that go to the campuses maybe more, maybe 400, I don't know the number, hundreds of thousands that are on the campuses that you go to. And so tonight I want you to shift in your mind. This session's not for you. This is not for you. This is about them. This is about the students that walk your hallways. This is about this, the young people, the friends that you know that are far from God and their life is broken by sin and they need Jesus. And the hands and feet of Jesus in their life, the voice of Jesus to change their lives is you. And so I'd like us to begin tonight. I want us just to, wherever you're at, I want us to pray I want to pray for a thousand revival movements on junior high and high school campuses. And so if you would, would you just get on your knees right where you're at? Just, just get right on your knees and pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we as desperation come before you. God, I pray that, Lord, you would take these disciples and turn them into disciple makers. 
God, we don't want to make excuses. We want to make disciples. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us. God, may this really be a moment where you supernaturally do a work in our lives and our hearts to where a 15-year-old that's sitting in the seat becomes the dynamic, servant-hearted leader that can't imagine going back to how life used to be. I pray, Lord Jesus, Lord God, that we would see a thousand, maybe more, but God, I'm asking for the thousand. Tonight, I believe I have faith for a thousand. A a thousand kids that are between 12 and 17, they're going to go back to their campus and be the campus pastor. Give it everything they've got in the days that they have, in the years that they have, in the months that they have, on those campuses, with those people. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for divine strength. I pray that even you would begin to trigger in their hearts that they would have a yes. I want to be one of the 1,000. And it will come with great costs. But it will come also with great reward. I ask, Lord Jesus, for a great multitude around your throne of people who give their lives to Jesus as a result of the leaders sitting in, this, in these seats in this room. Not the preachers, not the bands, Lord God, but the seats. Lord God, I need thousands of leaders. Let this force impact campuses back home. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. Go ahead and high-five the person next to you. Give them a big hug. Tell them you love them. Tell them they smell good. And go ahead and give them a kiss if you want. Yeah. Make sure and kiss the right person. We got any 12-year-olds in the room? 12 years old. You 12 years old? Yeah. And we got any 14-year-olds in the room? I mean, you're 14 years old. But we got any 18-year-olds in the room? 18. 17. 15. That's just where I'm going. The granddaddy right there. We got any 16-year-olds in the room? 16. Does it feel good to be 16? I'm telling you, woo, there's something great that happens when you're 12, because when you're 12, you finally get to go to the youth group. That's really cool. But man, even better than turning 12 is when you turn 16, because you can drive and you're free. And it's so incredible because all of a sudden at 16, man, All of a sudden, it's like looking in your rearview mirror. You want to get out. You can get out. I remember 16. I liked 16. 16 was good. When I was 16, I lived in Oklahoma. I had braces and a mullet down to here. Yep. Achy, breaky heart. I, I could reach back and grab my hair right there. It was a mullet. So it was short on top. You know what a mullet is? Short on top, long in the back. And, uh... 
Got my driver's license when I was 16. It was awesome. And uh, I was just outside my house when I was 16 years old, driving by myself, driving on MacArthur Boulevard, and uh, got pulled over. Yeah. Cop came up. I said to the cop, officer, I was scared to death. So, it, I, and yeah, truth be told, when I was 16, I still wasn't like officer. It was more like, yeah, officer. I mean, it was like, that's more where I was at. And uh, I said, yes, officer. And he goes, uh, can I see your driver's license? He was huge. I mean, beast. Like big old cop, southern Oklahoma cop, massive. You know, 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, and I was... Yeah. And uh, so I handed him my driver's license. I said, I'm 16, man. Yeah, here you go. And here's what he did. He had to kid you not. This is not a exaggerated true story. I said, what did I do wrong? And he looked at me and he said, son, which wasn't a good start. Son, I just saw you driving the, down the road and you... Look, not a day over 12. And I thought, there's no way that guy is 16 years old. (laughs) And I remember the joy in that moment when I could look back at him, have that shiny new license, and be like, I look at some of you guys tonight and as you go back to normal life, there's going to be such a temptation. People come your way and bring accusation. They look at you and without a doubt, there's going to be this, what do you think you're doing? You just took this vow. You're really going to lead that. You're really going to make an impact on our campus. Who do you think you are? I mean, you're going to lead a prayer meeting. You're going to fast. What are you going to shit? Come on. And maybe it might be from friends. Maybe it's from peers. Sometimes it's even from leaders. It's kind of this, this, maybe who do you think you are? And I love the stories of the young radicals that were campus pastors, even in junior high and high school. Tonight, the name of my message is this. I am the campus pastor. Tonight, my thought is, imagine with me if you've seen on stage Amy Perkins. She did a killer job, and she's preaching her heart out out here, up here. But before she was in her 20s, had a baby, and is, you know, leading here, Amy went back. She said, you know, not on my watch. I'm not going to allow these days to, go, to pass me by, these junior high, high school years. And in high school, she went on Sia at the pole. And she said, hey, we come uh, one day a week, you know, first one day of the year, first Sia at the pole. She says, hey, let's meet back here every single year. People look back. Are you, what's, that's kind of weird. That's kind of crazy. And she said, no, let's meet back here once a week. We're going to pray. It's not just once a year. We're, I'm going to see you at the pole every week. Campus pastor. Or you saw Kayla Sprague on all these videos. You see Kayla Sprague up here. You know her story, same thing. She's a preaching machine in high school. 
I mean, she's leading prayer meetings, and long before they're on a stage, they're in the seat, and they got a vision that says, I am going to go back and be faithful with the campus that I've got. Today, you see them as these young female pastors that are screaming, and Kayla's full of energy, and Amy's full of energy. But before there was ever a stage, they were in a seat, and they were saying, I'm going back, and I'm going to make a difference. And I say that, and you go, wow, sounds kind of arrogant. I am the campus pastor. I'm not saying you're the only campus pastor, and I'm not talking about some kind of self-righteousness that props up yourself, but I am talking about this dream and this vision and this burden that's in your heart that says, I'm going to make it hard to go to hell from my school. In the days that I have, I'm going to make sure that I am, what Amy talked about, a burning and a shining lamp, and I don't care about the method. You might, I don't know what your method might be of evangelism, of prayer, of lifestyle evangelism, of preaching the gospel, of declaring it. I believe some of the most strategic visions are not ones that come from churches or that come from uh, parachurches and give you ideas. I believe the most powerful ones is a 15-year-old with his face in the carpet crying out to God. And God drops an idea in intimacy with God. And that 15-year-old goes, when they light up and they've got a dream and it's their dream. And I'm looking for, dreaming of, what happens? What happens? I know there's thousands of you, so I don't know that all of you are going to do this. But I got a dream tonight of a thousand. I got a dream of these little revival movements. And when there's pushback, and there will be. And that's usually when people stop. Come on. There just has to be this encounter with Jesus and this determination that says, the years that I've got on this junior high, I am the campus pastor. I'm going to prayer walk. I'm going to march around it. I know people make fun of Jericho walks and you know, people always say, oh yeah, back in the 80s or the 90s, we marched around our school. And I always hear pastors joking around about that. And you know what I think? I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I think that the 16-year-old that mobilizes kids to pray around the school because that's the dream that they got because they're reading about Joshua, I think it's, I think it's phenomenal. I think that the 15-year-old that says, we're going to meet before school in a prayer meeting once a week or every day or meet at McDonald's at 6 a.m. Or the young man that says, I'm going to disciple 12 men and it's your idea and God dropped it in your heart. I don't like the guys that make fun of it. I like the guys that empower it. I like the guys that say, yeah, go do it. Go, go, go dream it. Go be a leader. Go get everything you got. I was talking this week at the Desperation Conference to an 11-year-old. An 11-year-old. And we were talking about how he's leading a prayer meeting at his school. And he, he said, I might lose the art room where we meet. And I said, well, what are you going to do if you lose the art room and you can't meet? An 11-year-old, school, an 11-year-old said, well, then I'll meet outside before school. They can't stop me. And I thought... That's an 11-year-old. I want you 17-year-olds to hear the heart of an 11-year-old. I want you to get a vision. I want you to get a dream that says, I am the campus pastor. I am, I'm not, and when I say that, listen, I'm not, I'm not pressing for you to be cocky and arrogant. There's 20, there are going to be 25 campus pastors. I'm not talking about some kind of structure. I'm talking about an ownership. I'm talking about, man, I got two years left on this campus. And I, I've got a mission and a vision. And Jesus didn't just 
change my life, touch my life, transform my life so that I can feel good in a room, but so that I can be a witness, so that I can be someone that talks about what I've seen and what I've heard. Paul says this in Galatians 1. It's it's a great story because, you know, Paul was not one of the 12 that walked with Jesus. Paul was out actually trying to destroy the church. And then Jesus appears to him. And it's an intriguing story because in in Galatians, there's people that are saying, well, he's not really, you know, he wasn't with Jesus. I'm not sure if he's a legitimate apostle. And I love Paul's response because he's talking about, he's kind of defending himself a little bit. And I think when I read it, he's a little ticked. And I'm not sure, but I'm going to read it like he's ticked because I think so. When I read it, I mean, he's like, in verse 10, he's like, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ Jesus. I think he's ticked. And look at what he says in verse 15, five verses later. He goes, but when God, these people are like, I'm not sure that you're an apostle. I don't know. He goes, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, suckers, and called me by his grace, ooh, his loving kindness, I like that. He called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So that, uh uh-oh, he didn't reveal himself to me just so that I can get a better life. Uh Uh-uh. I like a better life. So that he gives me purpose. Here it comes. So that I might preach him. Na, 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 na. Oh, no. Dear God, David, don't talk about preaching. Paul says, so that I might be a witness, so that I might declare, so that I might give a verbal witness, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was to go ask permission if I could do this. My immediate response was to go find Peter and say, hey, Peter. You think I'm all right? No. He goes, here's what happened. I'm cruising along, persecuting the church. Jesus appears to me. Acts chapter 9, brighter than the sun, knocks me off my donkey. All of a sudden, I'm on the ground. Jesus appears to me. I see him. He talks to me audibly. He tells me what I'm going to do. He tells me who I am. And all of a sudden, here's what he says. I've got a God and I've got a purpose. And here's what he says to Galatians, to the church of Galatia. He goes, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Here's what he's saying. You may not think I'm legit. I don't care. Jesus is my license. He's going, what? Listen, I love that moment when the policeman pulled me over and he's kind of cocky and I just look back at him and go, I got a license. My my voice might squeak and I might look like I'm 12, but get out of my face, old man. I mean, that's what I felt. I know that's not good honor, but it's still what I felt. Because I was kind of hurt, like, pull me over for that. Listen, as you go, all the time, you get set ablaze with zeal 
And you will have so many people, and it's always kind of cloaked in some kind of philosophical or some kind of even biblical language. It's like, I'm not sure that we really should tell people about Jesus. I mean, I don't know. I remember that. I mean, I had that all the time. I had a girl write me a letter. David, when I was in high school, David, I wish that you would just, you know, calm down a little bit. Just love them till they ask you why. Stop talking so much. I got all discouraged. Went up to my room, read the letter. She's a cheerleader. (laughs) Sorry. She's a cheerleader. I got a letter in the mail from a cheerleader. I thought I was just going to ask me to prom. She's griped me out about how much I talked about Jesus. Looked at my dad. I said, yeah, maybe I should calm down. My dad looked at me and he goes, you think Paul would calm down because a cheerleader wrote him a letter? That's what I'm talking about. Paul says, you guys, you can't stop me. Jesus appeared to me. And this week you're here, and I'm telling you, God set you apart from your mother's womb and called you by his grace. It's his loving kindness that he called you. He said to you, I love you, I delight in you. You are my son, you are my daughter. You are saved by grace through faith. And now he's saying, come on, I'm revealing my son to you. Don't look back, don't make excuses, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Jesus is your license. When I was in, uh, I was in Mexico with a bunch of pastors and this missionary from in Mexico, mountains of Mexico, and I'm there with five other pastors. We're all American pastors. I'm the youngest one there. He looks at us and we're all totally intimidated. When we got there, he was doing bow flex with a long beard down to here and a tank top. He walks out. He sits, he's seated in a, like a big chair. He sits us in small little chairs, like we're children. We're in the mountains of Mexico somewhere. And he literally says this. He goes, you pretty American preachers. That's what he said. We're a little defensive. I mean, we're, you know, he's there like in wranglers and boots. We're like in. You know, soccer shorts and umbros. What's up? We're from America. Where's Starbucks? You know, like. And he goes, he goes, uh, I'll never forget this. He goes, he goes, you know, all you American preachers, y'all want to write books. I always see it. Every time I go back to America, you're, some preacher's writing a book, glossy cover. And you put all your little picture on it. You put your picture on your glossy book. And he goes, and you put all your little friends' names on the back. So your little friends could say that you're a good preacher. He goes, ha, I've been down here 25 years, raising the dead, starting churches. I don't need a book. And he goes, you know what I think? If I were to ever write a book, it'd be a hundred pages. And right in the middle, there'd only be one word on my book, and it'd be the word Jesus. And on the back, there'd be none of my friends saying I'm a good preacher. Jesus would be my endorsement. Jesus. And we're all just standing there like, oh, I'm so scared. You know what I took away from that? 
I know you could say, you could talk philosophically. Well, I don't like that. Shut up. Here's what I like about that. Here's what was deep in his heart in his little correction of us. He goes, Jesus called me to preach. I don't care what other people say. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm called to. I didn't consult any human. I'm gonna, this is what God's called me to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm all, I love, I love honor. I love you honoring your youth pastor and honoring the principal. And I like all that. But can I be honest and tell you, there's so many timid sweeties and there's so few bold zealots that say, I'm going to be obedient to what Jesus has called me to do. And I think that we got to swing the pendulum towards where are the ones that say, you can't stop me. I'm 11, but you cannot stop me. I got a vision and a mission and a purpose. And when I was at the desperation conference or when I was back home, Jesus, by his grace, has revealed himself to me. I know who he is. He spoke his affection to me. And I know who I am. And I've got a purpose. And in the days that I have, man, I'm going after this. And you know what? When you're 40, when you're 30, you're going to need a pastor's license. You're going to need somebody to ordain you. You might have to go to seminary to be the pastor or the preacher. But when you are 16... With braces and crazy on a public campus. Jesus is your ordination. Jesus is your license. Jesus is your opportunity. And you just get to go, ha! And in the days that you got, I mean this time, what happens when you say, I'm giving everything. I'm not slowing down. I'm going to live this. I was talking to a, um, this guy who played in the NFL, and he played for the Seahawks. His name's Kevin Mawai. He played for the Seahawks, the Jets, and the Titans. And uh, I'm sitting there. There's a few pastors. We're sitting at lunch. He's a Christian. He's a Christ follower. Strong Christian. Speaks in churches and stuff. And, and you know, it's kind of cool to get to talk to an NFL player. It's really awkward when I gave him, like, a goodbye hug. It's like, <laughs> nice to meet you, man. So, all right. All right. Put her there. All right. But I said this to him. We're sitting in this little Mexican restaurant. And I said, so tell me, I'm just trying to start a conversation. Everybody's talking about just normal life, but I want to know about the NFL because it's an NFL player. I said, so um, are there a lot of Christians in the NFL? He says something so amazing. He goes, depends on the Christian leadership on the team. I thought to myself, you mean it's... It's not like in the South, there's more Christians on the Saints or on the Dallas Cowboys or, you know, the Houston Texans. And then it's kind of hard up, you know, difficult up in the Northeast. So there's less Christians on the Patriots or whatever, you know, different places. Or, you know, there's, it has nothing to do with, well, maybe, but it has nothing to do with, (laughs) what are you laughing at? All right, sorry. Didn't mean to pick on the Patriots, but anyway. But he, he says, no, no, nothing to do with region, nothing to do with ownership has to do with Christian leadership on the squad. He began to talk about different squads that had Christian leaders. He said, if there's Christian leaders, he said, there are some teams, there are so many Christ followers on the team. There are some teams that got none. And I thought to myself, that is just like high school, junior high campuses. And all the time we hear this, well, you know... It's a Christian school. And so because it's a Christian school, there's really no way to reach him for Jesus because it's already Christian. That's just so dumb. You know what kind of opportunity you have? 
you, you've got an incredible opportunity, whether it's Christian or public. You've got an opportunity, if there is Christians, to take them deeper, to go after God. And if, if there is Jesus doing stuff, get a bigger vision to reach the nations or to use heart work and touch the poor. Lead, I'm not saying you have to, it has to be just strictly about evangelism in your campus. Man, if everybody's already saved, then go reach the world. Get a city vision. Go reach another campus. Oh, well, David, I don't know, you know, like... I live in the Bible Belt, so it's impossible to really get people saved in the Bible Belt because, you know, it's kind of religious, and that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm telling you, in the Bible Belt, there's so much apathy, and we need to ride at the core some zealots to talk about really following Jesus and real surrender and real love and give everything. Well, David, I don't know. I live up in the north, and it's so, it's, I mean, it's so pagan, and it's so lost. Or I live in the inner city, or I live, no, just stop making excuses and make disciples. Just know that at the core, Jesus has called you. And yeah, I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm telling you, you've got an opportunity. You've got a God who's called you, and it's your privilege. It's your opportunity, and the dream, the dream is that you would make an impact on that campus. Yeah, but David, I'm immature. I'm 14. I know. That's what's so amazing. Imagine that for, I'll, make, I'll make mistakes. Yes, you will. Mistakes, that's okay. Better to have some bold zeal and a little wildfire than no fire. And I'm telling you, I like some of the awkward mistakes. I think it's funny. Actually, one of my friends got saved at 14, and he was one of the most biggest rebels in our school, and he did so many awkward things. Eighth grade, he gave his life to Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's reading the Bible for the first time, and he's doing awkward things. He read the verse that said, greet each other with a holy kiss. He started kissing me in the hallway on the forehead. Mwah. I said, don't do that. He goes, it's in the Bible right there. You can tell me... Not do the Bible, go, bro, you don't even know context. I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid, I can tell you. you know, no. Bold leader, kid saved the next week. He's asking if he can preach. I'm like, preach? We never had a kid preacher. We always have teachers preach. He goes, I read, says to preach. I'm like, don't you understand? We don't do what the Bible says. We just read it. He goes, I know, I know I'm a kid, but I want to preach. So I go to the teacher. I go, hey, I know this guy's kind of crazy. And a couple of weeks ago, he was lost. He just got saved. He wants to preach. Teacher looks at me, he goes, he wants to preach? I go, yeah, him. It was the same guy? Yeah, he got saved. He wants to preach. I mean, we're talking like a couple of weeks earlier. He was the, like, I mean, not a preacher. <laughs> he walks up in front. He doesn't preach. All he does is starts eating bread and acting like he's poor. Eighth grade. I'm going, what is he doing? He's got dirt on his face. He walks out of the room and I chase him out. He's in the music room. I was like, what are you doing? You said you're going to preach. He's like, I am. I'm like, what? He goes back in. He goes, I was a poor man that needed bread and Jesus is the bread of life. That's it. That's his whole sermon. Awkward. That's it. But you know what that made me want to do? I wanted to preach. Well, I'm not going to be outdone by him. So I went to Mr. Schlotsky, something like that. I went to, that's a restaurant. 
Kaczynski? I don't know, something like that. Uh, I can't remember his name. He had a mustache. Um, and I said, hey, can I preach next week? And he's like, yeah, you can preach next week. And I'm, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'm going to do better than this guy. So here's my first sermon, eighth grade. I go to my dad. I'm like, I'm preaching. I need a text. And my dad, you know, gives me this idea. You know, let's read through. Let's talk about Timothy. You know, talking to young people. So I pull out this text. It says this. But mark this. There, uh, so I walk up and I, read, and I read this. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. People will be lovers of pleasure. People, and it's just this whole list. It's Paul saying to Timothy about how horrible it will be. And it's just awful. I mean, it's just terrible. And then I, I look at, at everybody and I go, you know it's the last days because all y'all like this. That's how we say it in Oklahoma. All y'all. All y'all like this. My friend, he started to read the book of Song of Solomon. And he had never been in our little Christian clique of seven people, but now he was, and he had a crush on one of the Christian girls. Yeah. He decided not to write like a normal eighth grade note. He's like, I'm just writing scripture. Yeah. He hands, I'll never forget. He hands her this, this was ninth grade now, and it's still this bad. Ninth grade. He hands her this note, and it's just, (laughs) I can't even say it. I'll just, I'll give the edited version. I mean, it's Song of Solomon. It's like, it's like your neck is the Tower of David. It's you're, some parts of you are like pomegranates, and I, I mean, it's like it's like it was like taking hold of clusters and all kinds of things, and I'm like, this girl, this poor little Christian girl, she's just she's just like, tell you those stories because listen, I get it. I get like, Hey, my, I'm not fully mature yet. I'm not really a pastor, but here's the deal. I want to encourage you pray, take risks, get out of your comfort zone and dream. And if you mess up, who cares? Like you're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to be like, you know, that song of Solomon letter. I didn't like that. He's going to be like, that's so cute, man. That's so, I like, you're my boy. What's up? How are you trying? You're dumb as a brick, but I think it's great. And so tonight I want to say, you're the campus pastor. You got this dream. Kind of in your heart. I am the campus pastor. And I want you to just lock in. I want you to lock in that as you do this, as you give, your, as you give yourself to whatever the, the, the methodology or the strategy that the Lord gives you as you study and as you pray and as you talk to your youth pastor and your senior pastor and you kind of give yourself to saying, man, I want to I walk across the stage when I get my diploma and I want to look out at those people and I want to have prayed for them and cried out for them and loved them and invited them to church and given everything to reach them. And so I say welcome to the ministry tonight. 
I'm 18. Welcome to the ministry. I'm 15. Welcome to the ministry. I'm 12. No, I'm 12. Welcome to the ministry. Welcome. Okay. But here's the thing about ministry. <laughs> You're in the ministry, right? You know how Paul talks about the ministry? Look at, look at how Paul talks about this to Timothy, all right? Paul, he's 35 years a witness of the gospel. He's in a Roman prison cell. He's speaking to young Timothy. Timothy's leading a church in Ephesus. Nero is persecuting the church. And you've got old Paul speaking to young Timothy. And this is the language in 2 Timothy about ministry. This is how he talks about ministry to Timothy. Paul says, join with me in suffering. <laughs> no, ha, not me. My ministry is going to be amazing. I'm a flyer on the world. I'm going to be Tim Tebow for Jesus. Yeah. I'm going to be Carrie Job. That's me. That's the ministry I'm in. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe one or two or three of you. Most of you, suffering. <laughs> Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Paul uses language of military and he says, Join with me in suffering. Not like, hey, welcome, here's a little license, put it on your wall, enjoy a big salary and live the dream, baby. No, here's how he talks about it. Hey, little Timmy, listen to me. Here's how I see ministry. Join with me in suffering. What? Yeah. Join with me in suffering. Ministry is an invitation to voluntary suffering. Welcome to the ministry. It's your opportunity to say, I could live in a comfort zone, but I'm going to voluntarily get out of the comfort zone and choose to be in a battle that matters. I'm going to choose to be in a war zone. And listen, when you're in a war, when you're in a battle, you get hit. It's hard. And I, I mean, imagine Paul uses this language of commanding, a commanding officer. And so in a sense, what you're saying is, okay, first Jesus is my license. And now Jesus is my boss. All right, here we go. Jesus, my commanding officer, Jesus, my boss. I'm going into a battle, and when you go into battle, when you start the prayer meetings, when you do the prayer walks, when you tell the people about Jesus, there will be pushback. It just, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. Will you be made fun of? Yes. They made fun of Jesus, they'll make fun of you. They, they, it's just going to happen. And so you got to have this resilience in your heart that says, this is what lasts forever. This is more important than soccer. This is more important than football. This is more important than cheerleading. This is more important than math club. This is more important than German club. This is more important than whatever. Drama, club, this, show choir. Yeah. Uh, I could do show choir. Yes, New York. It's really us, Barnaby. Okay, anyway, so. Where's Amy? Flex! All right. Sorry. I was in show choir. That was an embarrassing moment. Why'd I do that? All right. Somebody yelled it. All right. I'm talking about suffering, and I'm sorry. 
When you're in the battle, imagine a soldier coming up to his commanding officer after being in war and coming up and saying, whining and in tears saying, they're shooting at me. What's the commanding officer? Dude, you enlisted. You're at war. You enlist, welcome to a battle. And you know what? Jesus said in John 15, he goes, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. Everybody wants to be popular. Jesus wants you to be his. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Ah, David, but I want big awards. I want applause. You're probably going to take a couple hits. It's probably going to be challenging. I want recognition. You know what Zinzendorf said? You remember what that is? Brandon talked about it. Zinzendorf, the great prayer leader that led to a missions movement. 1727, he said this. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the gospel. Give everything. I'm already a dead man walking. And I want as many people as possible to know him. And I want to invite you. All right? If I choose this, it's going to be a battle. Yes, it's a battle. And it's a battle worth giving your life for. Look at the way that Peter says it. He says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This is, Peter goes, hey, do not be surprised when you suffer, when you go through hardship. You know what we do? We live in America. We're like, I thought everybody was going to come to my prayer meeting. I didn't think I'd be there by myself. Somebody called me a name. And you go to your youth pastor. You're like, I did what I said. I, 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 led, I led the prayer meeting. I told people about Jesus. And nobody cares. I'm suffering. And here's what you're doing. I'm so surprised. I thought I was God's conduit for revival. I thought it was going to go easy. And Peter goes, no, 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 no. Don't be surprised when you go through suffering. It shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't surprise you. Don't consider it strange. What's his point? It's, It's a part of following Jesus. It's going to be hard. And I, I love it here. This is like my, this is, we all joke around. This is like Christmas. We come together. We worship together. I mean, we get to be in Colorado and it's awesome. And it's all of you guys are seeking the Lord together. It's this great moment. And then you go to the battle, to the war zone. And you go, oh, I don't know that that's real. My prayer for you is that when you face trials and when you face temptations and when you take risks, we step out of the boat and you choose to give everything and you face difficulty that you'll know. I am going to get shot at. This is what happens to a man or a woman that's in battle. And I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if it's what teachers say or what parents say or what 
what teachers try to stop you, or if it's, I don't know the difficulty that you'll go through, but I promise you, if you are on the offense, if you are on the offense moving forward, you will get pushback. It's like, it's like this. We just finished watching the NBA finals, and if you, if you notice, I mean, there's, there's this guy, LeBron, and, and you know, like, he gets, he gets double teamed all the time, right? Double teamed. You know why he gets double teamed? Because he is the bomb, right? He gets double teamed because he's the best, right? He gets, oh, no, no, I don't care about it. I'm just making an illustration for a sermon. Don't listen to that. But, right, here's the deal. If you are hanging out at midcourt and you can't dribble and you can't shoot and you are no offensive threat, ain't nobody double teaming you. Nobody even is going to guard you because you're pathetic. But if you can dribble, if you can drive the lane, if you can shoot the three, if you're the best on the offense, man, the other team goes, we've got to shut that guy down. You know what? When you're on the offense, you're going to get double teamed. All of a sudden, the enemy is going to care. We've got to shut that guy down. And you will face suffering, and you will face trial. And, and, but you are irrelevant to the game when you are not on the offense. Matthew 16, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not be able to overcome the church. He says, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. When I first heard that, I mean, I was a kid, and I, I didn't understand. And they, All right, the, the gates of hell will not be able to overcome the church. And in my brain, I literally pictured like, I just, I pictured like the devil and demons with like white pickets, fences, like hitting up against our brick church, like, you know, the building, like the gates of hell, like, all right, the gates of hell, are they, what are the gates of hell? Uh, you know, like, like a white picket fence or a black or a red picket fence, you know, like. Okay, but here's the language that Jesus is saying. You had walled cities and these walled cities would have gates to keep out the enemy, right? And so when Jesus says this, he says, the gates of hell will not be able to keep out the church. What he's saying is the church is so on the offensive. They are so, they are moving forward and the gates of hell won't be able to stop them because they are plummeting hell. They're coming in, they're on the offense. This weekend, some of you came in broken and hurting and wounded. And what's been going on is God's been revealing himself to you, healing you, setting you free. You're choosing to follow him. You're cleaning up. You're getting ready. And now you're going back and you get the privilege of being on Jesus' team. And you get to play offense. You get to go and destroy the works of the devil. First John 3. You get to go back and say, I'm, I'm going to go back. I don't know if people are going to come against me, but, but when they do, 
Jesus is my license. Jesus is my boss. Watch out, hell. Come on after you. I'm going after this. I care about the things of Jesus. When I talk about offense, I'm not talking about like swords and military. No, we are on the offense like Jesus was in the off- on the offense. What Jesus did is what you do. So for us being on the offense means like praying, loving people, and telling people who Jesus is. Forgiving, that's the offense. That's the opposite of the way that the world works. But our offense is whatever Jesus does, God on the earth with skin on, and that's how you live on the offense. You look at the life of Jesus. As you live like Jesus, people will be annoyed with you because you're not like them and you're different than them, and it will bug them. Some people will say, I want what you got. Some people will say, I don't want you got, but no matter what, they will form an opinion about you. And when you do that, you get some comrades and you get some people that you're trying to reach. And what you're saying to all of them is, Jesus revealed himself to me and I didn't ask anybody else. I don't care what any Anybody else says, I am going after the things of God. I'm not going to stop. You don't need any license from anybody. You've got Jesus. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be challenging. Paul said in Philippians 1, look at this way. He goes, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ Jesus, not only to believe in him, that's what we've already done this week, but here it is, but also to suffer for him. Woo! Oh, David, I really like the vow until that. Oh, yeah, look what Paul says a couple chapters later. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Man, a number of years ago, I took that phrase right there. I want to know Christ. Pastor Brandon always makes fun of this. but what, Oh, no, John Egan always makes fun of this. All right. I just get made fun of all the time, so I don't know who's making fun of me. But No, not really. That's love. But I, I, I preached a sermon where, where I did, it was here at New Life, and I did, I, I just took that phrase, I want to know Christ. And then I just, I just took the different phrases, I want to know not somebody else, you know, but me. And then I took the next phrase and highlight, and the next word title that I want, not I'm okay with it. And then to know, and then I was like, what? And that was my third point, to know, I mean, not just to know, or barely, but to really know. And then the fourth point was Christ, not to know something else. And I mean, you know, I got done and I was sweating and I thought it was so powerful. And I just preached a sermon, I want to know Christ. And I was like, yeah, felt like it landed really well. And my friend who, <laughs> missionary from Mexico, same trip, he comes up to me and he goes, you didn't finish the verse. I was like, what? And he was like, your sermon. You didn't even finish the verse. I was like, well, that wasn't my point. And he goes, I don't care what your point was. You didn't finish the verse. <laughs> I go back, read the, the whole verse. And I'm like, I don't want to preach the rest of the verse. I want to know Christ is where I want to Stop. I don't want to go, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I want people to like me at this church. But let me tell you, it's not complete if you come here and you have this encounter and you go back and you've got all these great affections. He's my father. He loves me. The bridal paradigm. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And that's where it stops. 
Oh, that's beautiful. And I love that. And that's foundational. But let me tell you this. When you go back and you're a missionary, you're a sent one, you're a witness, you're trying to make a measurable impact in the years that you have on your campus, I can guarantee you and promise you there will be some suffering. People look back and they go, no, because you're on the offense and they're going to shoot at you and the devil's going to go, I want to take that guy down. Part of our journey, part of our privilege is participate. And we want to become like Jesus in every way, shape and form that we possibly can. And so we go from American dream. That's my aim and my goal. To, okay, Christ's likeness. Jesus gave his life in suffering. And I don't know what denying myself, taking my cross and following him will look like. And I'm not at all saying that we try to suffer. But what I am saying is that there's a willingness in our hearts. And as we go through hardship, we are not surprised when you go through suffering. And you go, Mocked, lied about, people ticked, annoyed. You're leading the prayer meeting and you're the only one there every day. You had the rally to tell people about Jesus. People put up signs saying that you're a fake. Whatever the story might be. You're going, this is a part of my journey. Participating in the sufferings of Christ. When I say that, you live in America, you're not going to go through the, the nearly the pain. It's not going to touch it. But when you do, instead of being mad at God, you walk through the pain and you go, Jesus walked through something far worse than this. And I will follow him no matter where this journey takes me. And I'll be obedient to Jesus even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even as I go through pain. Jesus looks at his disciples, and I love as he sends them out. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. As Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. Okay, All authority has been given to me. All right, I have defeated the enemy. All right, I have all authority. You are, you, you're the ones who've been hanging out with me and I've been teaching you and mentoring you and, and training you. And I want you to go into all the world. And I want you to do with other people what I've done with you. You go, uh, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the, name of the, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's a lot. He, t- he taught a lot. And then he says this phrase. And surely I am with you to the very end. How on earth, David, can I possibly go through suffering? Because he is with you. He's with me. You go, I've got him. He, I, and, and if he's with me, then I can go through any trial, any difficulty, any challenge. And I want to press this tonight. I believe in God's omnipresence, which means that he is everywhere. But there is something unique about the person that takes the Great Commission literally and steps out of their comfort zone where they're intentionally taking risks to make disciples and to be a witness. 
Somebody who steps out of what's easy and what's normal, God goes, all right, my presence will be with them. There's a tangible, manifest presence when you step out of what's easy and what's comfortable and you take a risk and you feel all this potential fear and this potential pain and you're aware of people think of me and you step out of it and you go, and you go, I'm going for it. Uh, And it could look like a lot of different things, but you go, I'm going to give everything. The old time preachers, they used to say this out of the King James they used to say, the old King, the King James Version, it would say, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I used to hear, you know, old preachers say, no go, no low. You know, and that was the idea. No go, no low. That means if you don't go, if you don't do this, you don't get the, you don't get the present. You don't get the lo, I am with you always. NIV is nowadays, it's, and surely I'm with you always. So I want you to remember that, okay? No go, no surely. All right, surely I am with you. And that's what he says right there. Surely, the only people that laughed at that was the preachers on the front row. Anyway, all right. That wasn't that funny, sorry. I was gonna say no, go, no, low, but it didn't make sense because NIV said surely, no surely. Forget it. Surely I am with you always to the end of time. Here's what he says. My presence is with you as you step out, as you, you watched all these stories. These are just stories. These are just testimonies. You've got your story. You've got what God's called you to do. You abide in the vine. You start to see fruit and you go, all right, I'm going to step out of what's comfortable. I'm going to follow Jesus. And as you do that, his presence will be tangible. And we see it all through the Bible, right? There's this moment, the first martyr, Stephen, he's going through uh, suffering in Acts They're literally throwing rocks at him to stone him. And in that moment, he has this vision of Jesus. Suffering, pain. He's going through the hardship. And right there, there's, he looks up and he's got this vision of Jesus. Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the story. We refuse to bow down. If you don't bow down, we'll throw you in the fiery furnace. Fine, throw us in the fiery furnace, but we will not bow down to an idol. We will only worship Yahweh. And so they say, fine, we'll throw you into the furnace. And into the furnace they go. And then the great story. I don't see three in there. There's four. Why? Surely. I am with you always as you walk through the challenge, the suffering, the pain. You have this promise. I am with you. Yeah, here I am at this prayer meeting at 6 a.m. Nobody showed up except for the weird girl that's got a crush on me. Surely I am with you always. I am with you. I know it's awkward and it's hard, but keep praying. Yeah, I I went and I took this opportunity to make sure that every single person on my campus heard the good news of Jesus. And I did this assembly or I passed out information or I invited them to church and whatever the story. Here's the, as you're stepping out and risking, that's the place, that's the moment where there is this, this real manifest presence where he goes, I am with you. 
and you talk to people who have gone through hardship and suffering overseas or have given of Jesus in a sacrificial way, and they've risked and they've gotten out of their comfort zone, and you applaud them and say, great job, way to go. And you know what is always the response? They always come back and go, oh, no. No, I don't want that. No, he was faithful to me. He was, he was my reward. I don't want your applause. No, Jesus is enough for me. I never made a sacrifice. No, I don't, no, 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 no. I don't want your award or your plaque. Ugh. Why? Because as I went through that hardship, as I was obedient to Jesus, even when it was hard and it was difficult and everybody else was out doing all the other fun stuff and consuming their life with hobbies. And I was giving my life to what mattered. No, I don't want all that. I am His presence with me. That is my reward. And that's what I want. I don't even care about the awards of man. I care about the eyes and the face of Jesus. And his presence was right there with me. He's with you. As you go through that challenge, whatever suffering, he's... He's right there with you. The challenge is not to hear it. The challenge is to live it. The challenge is to believe it. The dream is for you to take the risk. Step out of your comfort zone. Have people like crazy not understand you. Listen, it's okay in our culture. It's okay in our culture to just be a quiet, timid, sweet, Christian, nice, cute, silent kid. Nobody gets mad at you for being kind. Nobody gets mad at you as long as you keep quiet. But the moment that you step into the public square and to start to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The moment that you start to talk about Jesus the way that the disciples talk about Jesus, you can bank on the fact you will disrupt everything and people will be bugged. And as you proclaim him, as you talk about him, Jesus, Jesus, I mean, we've got that in Jesus all these years, right? All these years where we don't have much of Jesus. And then when he starts talking, then he starts preaching and he starts saying, nope, I'm the only way. Well, you got to, you know, eat, eat my flesh, drink of my blood. You got to do this my way. Everybody gets angry. Why? When he starts preaching, you start preaching. And what I'm saying, preaching, when you start talking about who Jesus is, get ready for pushback. And then you'll start to go through your mind. Well, let me see if I can find a way to skirt around the scriptures to justify my silence. And yet we've got so crystal clear in the word of God, Jesus telling us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to go and be a witness. And Paul says here in Galatians 1.15, he goes, this is what I'm called to do. I'm called to preach. But David, I don't want to preach. I don't want to preach. I want everybody to like me. No, you want to stand before Jesus and have him wink at you and go, well done, good and faithful servant. I know it's hard. I know you got double teamed. I know it's a battle, but I delight in you. And you were a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight, I'm just dreaming of a thousand campus pastors. It's not an official position. It's not just one on campus. It's what you own in your heart. This is 
my mission field. I got two years left at this school. I got three years left. At th- I got one year left at this school. And I am going to make sure that as many of these people that I can pray for, that I can tell them about Jesus. Oh, David, that's so strong. Yes, I know. But you know there's people that are doing it. You know all these stories are not made up. You know that there are young people that have led hundreds of people to Jesus. You know that there are 12-year-olds leading people to Jesus. You know that you can lead people to Jesus. You know it doesn't have to be just some kind of shame. Let me kind of come up with a philosophical argument as to why I can be shallow and apathetic and lethargic. No, you want to develop an argument that you get from Scripture on why you gave everything that you had to follow Jesus and to make as many people know him and walk with him as possible. That is your privilege. Your privilege is not to come at the end of your life and say, hey, I made it. I'm so comfortable. Look at this nursing home. It's so great. Oh, I had a boat and I had a nice house and I played Nintendo whatever, 40, 67, I don't know. I I, I, I had so much comfort. Jesus looks and he promises to send the comforter. In John 14, he promises to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit to the disciples. You know why? Because they need him. Why? Because they're not living for comfort. When you live for comfort, you don't need God. You don't need the comforter. Why? Because I'm living for comfort. But the moment that you say, I'm living for Jesus, what you're laying on the altar is comfort. And he says, I will be with you. I am your comforter. I'll take care of you. I'll be your reward. I'll be your hope. I'll be your future. I'll take care of you. I'll love you. But they don't love me anymore. They don't think I'm cool anymore. They don't like me anymore. And he goes, I like you. (sighs) Okay. But I really like, do I want them to like me? I like you. I want both. Come on. Am I the creator? Yes. Does what I think matter? Yeah, but God, it's so much easier when I'm popular and everybody thinks I'm cool. I like you. I delight in you. I'm your father. I'll take care of you. Yeah, but I really want a, I really want a big paycheck so I can, I, I want to, well, am I enough for you? Really? It's not just like language though. It's really real. Okay. God, you're my reward. You're my comfort. And I'm not going to live for popularity. I'm not going to live what the comforts of this age give. I'm 13, I'm 15, and God, what you care about is what I care about. And so I choose to get out of my comfort zone. And I want you to be my comfort. And he goes, watch me, watch me. You're in a den of lions. I'll shut their mouths. You're in a furnace. I'll show up. You're getting stoned, being killed by rocks. I'll give you a vision. We just had, yeah, but you're still dying. I I just had this. I'll close with this. I just had these friends. They did our internship here at New Life. I don't know what, Dan, 13 years ago, maybe. And uh, they're missionaries now to Nepal. 
We just went through the earthquake. And um, so they're full-time and appalling. We have two different couples that have graduated from our internship, and, and both of them are in Nepal. And they're doing different ministries, their own ministries. But and I was watching a video just this summer. And I was watching them, and they're raising their kids. Got little boys. I mean, like little, like three and five-year-olds. And I'm watching these videos of their little boys. And I'm watching them in the ruins. I mean, it's Nepal, but then on top of that, it's the earthquake, and now it's just devastation. And I'm seeing this, and I watched this video where this buddy of mine, raising his kids, he's looking at this video, and he's going, hey, this is what we're doing, and if you could help us, we're doing this for people, we're doing this for the poor, and this is, we're going to help, help them to know Jesus, and this is what's happening, and this is so great, and, and so we need all the funds, and so this earthquake just happened, but really, you know, what's, what's God, God's using this earthquake because people are, are getting to know Jesus, and we're getting to help the poor, and I mean, I'm like watching him, and I see no comfort physically, but I see purpose life and the presence of Jesus and he was fully alive and I'm watching the video blog going that's living in the ruins of an earthquake in Nepal and so uncomfortable but man the comforter is right there with him and he's alive on the inside and Jesus is with him <laughs> 